Tune in every Tuesday to the Learning with Lowell podcast with me, your host, Lowell, to hear world-class scientists, startup founders, CEOs, and authors, people who you wouldn't normally hear about but are making huge waves all the same. You'll understand them and their work by hearing their passion, laughter, advice, and hearing them, the experts, break down what they're working on so that you can learn, push the boundaries of your knowledge, and understanding. Today we're joined with Brenda Peterson. A few of the books she has written, and she has written quite a lot, are I Want to Be Left Behind, Animal Heart, Duck and Cover, Between Species, Build Me an Ark, A Life with Animals, Wild Orca, Wolf Haven, Wolf Nation, and she has a new book coming out called Catastrophe by the Sea. All the links to these will be in the show notes, but if you're listening in, it is brendapetersonbooks.com if you want to check them out yourself. In this episode, we get into what's it like being an author, like how she got into it, the her thought process behind the writing of different books, her thoughts on nature, wolves, wolf nation, uh, different things involving wolves, like the the myths, the you know, mystery and stuff like that. And we get into just a little like nugget of what type of person she is. And we get into that in like over the next hour or so. And if, if you are at all fascinated with what it takes to be a writer, if you're at all fascinated with you know, Cy, one of the other people we've been on, we've had on the podcast, you know, these lovers of nature who write about it, you know, it gets you so excited. You want to get out and, and visit the different places. Then this is the episode for you. Cause you'll, you'll hear what type of person actually writes these types of books. Like it's more than just the written word. It's also her passion and love for these, the subject material that is just fantastic. So if any of that sounds amazing to you and you want to hear about it and you want to hear about it uh, from someone who has a lovely voice, not myself, you know, her, she, her voice is very soothing, then this is the, the episode for you. So let me know if you like this type of content and I will continue to make it and then encourage guests like Brenda to come onto the show. I'm curious what drew you to writing it as like something you wanted to do to such a level that you wrote several books, uh, you know, at this point. Well, Lowell, I was always fascinated by animals, and as you might know, I grew up on a forest lookout station for the first five years of my life, way up in the high Sierra, surrounded by only 10 people and many, many animals. And I had all sorts of experiences, one with a rattlesnake I write about in my memoir, Build Me an Ark, A Life with Animals, who actually curled up on my chest in the sun. And I also listened to squirrels and chipmunks and ate wild game. So I had a very beautiful, pristine, natural um, childhood until my I'd got a fellowship to Harvard. And we had to put on shoes and go to Boston. And it was very shocking, you know, to have civilization after that kind of first five years. But I always, always wrote about animals. Even when I was like five and seven, I would write stories about my um, mostly wild animals because we didn't have pets until later. So it was kind of a natural. It's funny, I saw your wonderful interviewer and my dear friend, Cy Montgomery, last week. And I said, Cy, whenever you fall in love with an animal, the whole world falls in love with an animal. And she said, yes, but Brenda, you become the animal. So I think that explains a lot. And also, when you look at my kind of literary background, I was very privileged to work at the New Yorker magazine for five years. 
in my early 20s under Sean. So I had the best mentors in the world. They might have been crazy, but they were wonderful writers. Mm-hmm. And so that was a long apprenticeship where I learned about the business of writing, the editorial um, you know, exigencies of writing, and it taught me so much about what my life would be like as a writer. And because I saw New York close up, I decided to leave it after five years and go back to the West, which was my right. And so I've been here pretty much ever since. Um, and there are wild animals. I'm looking at a seal right now, the Salish Sea, who just bobbed up and pirouetted around. And in my neighborhood, I started a group called Seal Sitters, who sit with seals when their mothers are out fishing. And it's like daycare on the beach. And so, you know, I believe in neighborhood activism, in neighborhood naturalism. Everyone doesn't have to be a scientist to help animals. And definitely. I, I grew up on my uh, farm myself, and uh, I had I had more pets than uh, wild animals around. But I always liked walking around and kind of noting, like, okay, here here this many number of nests of this bird and like, how is it like changing over the years? Just, I guess, cause I'm a nerd. I just wanted to see how the population's changed. Uh, but yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's like to see the, like we, we, uh, went from having like this dry bed to having like this Creek that we like kind of dug out. So that there'd be water there. And just over a course of like a couple months, like there's so many fish and it just, it's a uh, conservation of nature. I think it's just uh, an amazing thing. The, but for, for people who, um, who are, who are thinking about getting into writing or like, or writers right now trying to make their way into it. Um, is there either um, uh, some key things that you've learned that you think would be really uh, applicable for like a budding author or that you wouldn't mind sharing? Yeah. And good luck to your girlfriend with her new, new book. Um, <laughs> yeah. you, know, you said she just finished a book. So mm-hmm. good luck with that. Um, because I have always taught writing, I published my first book with Kanaf, my first novel, when I was 27, and immediately got a job teaching in the university. But I really hated the politics. So I left, took all my grad students, and ever since, 30-some years, I've been teaching. And I wrote a book with my literary agent called Your Life is a Book, mm-hmm. How to Publish and Craft Your Memoir. So. It depends on what you're writing. If you're writing memoir, that's very different than a novel. Or if you're writing natural history, like my book, Wolf Nation, that's very different. And because I write all of those things, and now children's books, um, I could give different advice. But a lot of people right now, baby boomers, are thinking about their legacies. And they're, they're wondering what they can give. One of my students says, all we have are our stories. And after we leave, that's all we leave with is our story. So it's really a good thing to pass down your story, much more valuable than money. And I, so I'm going to speak to the memoir writers mm-hmm. um, audience right now and say, you have to realize that you are the main character of this book, as horrifying as that might seem. And the evolution of your soul and your character is the plot of the memoir. I mean, memoirs aren't just this happened, that happened. 
memoirs are, what are the turning points in my life that shaped me as a person? And whether it's a life with animals or my second memoir, I want to be left behind finding rapture here on earth. It was a dark comedy of family and faith. I realized that my family's faith was very much at odds with our very um, pristine and, and, and natural upbringing. And that caused in me a kind of conflict and contradiction. So many people who write memoirs are trying to figure out a contradiction, whether it's growing up with racism or growing up with um, some sort of prejudice, like against wolves, or growing up with something that doesn't sit well. And then you try to resolve it and figure it out. So that's the plot of your memoir. And so many people when writing a memoir are just trying to get it down. They don't realize they have to have a plot. Now, in novel writing, it's already obvious that you need a plot because people don't read stories without a plot. We are storytelling animals. And one of the assignments, this is a great assignment for any of your listeners, go to a place like, you know, your coffee house or whatever. Sit next to a conversation with a friend of yours. Listen to that conversation. Bring your computer or whatever. Type up what you heard in that conversation, and I will tell you that each of you will hear a different conversation. You might hear similar phrases, but your angle of vision or your point of view will determine how you shape the conversations that are around you. And so many people don't know how to tell a story. They just go on and on. They don't select, you know, high points of drama. So that's a very good, it's called, I call it the eavesdropping exercise. And all of these prompts and exercises are in the book, Your Life is a Book. Mm -hmm. um, so I could go on and on because, you know, I'm teaching this afternoon. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, I love working with people who are trying to tell a story. Are there, um, as a quick interjection, are there a couple of good memoirs that you've read recently that you wouldn't mind recommending? Well, I will refer you to Cy Montgomery's wonderful Good Good Pig. Um, I think that's, as an animal person, it's it's hard to, I worked with Cy on that book, and Cy is not a natural memoirist because she's more of a science writer. But when she realized that Christopher, the pig, helped make her more human because he was very social and she was kind of an introvert, that was the key to the memoir. It's a wonderful memoir. Um, I would highly recommend that. I would also highly recommend a, a novel that I just finished reading and I'm teaching right now called Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, who's a nature writer and has written a lot about baboons and hyenas and lions. But she's written a wonderful book about the North Carolina Outer Banks and the Swamp is a main character. It's also a mystery. So those are the two books I would recommend right now. Have you um have you ever read a memoir about an area and then been so energized to see it for yourself that you've actually visited it and kind of like seen what the author was talking about? Like, oh, this is the area where, you know, this happens. You're like, you visit it and you kind of get that feeling. 
Oh, yes. I've read, uh, you know, when I wrote the National Geographic books called Sightings mm-hmm. about gray whales, I had read a lot of books about going to Baja and encountering the friendly gray whales. And that's one of the reasons I went there, because I had read, you know, all of these. A lot of them were not so much memoir, but National Geographic articles or, um, you know, uh there's a wonderful poet who wrote a lot about gray whales, and he inspired me. So mm-hmm. for seven years, I went with my native co-author, Linda Hogan, and we went to Baja and uh, encountered um, the friendly gray whales and wrote about it in sightings. So, yes, I think I want to go back to North Carolina after reading the Crawdads book because my family lives there, my father and mother live there, on the Outer Banks, and I, I used to go there all the time when I lived in New York, and once got caught up in a hurricane, which was a highlight of my life. So, okay. uh, yeah, I that when you fall in love with a place and you write about it, um, you invite a lot of people. I mean, I've lived in Seattle now since 1981, and I wrote Living by Water, and I've written you know, singing to the sound. And I, I always waver between a love letter to my region and not wanting everyone to move here. <laughs> that makes sense. But, um, but uh, how was uh, getting stuck in a hurricane a highlight? I, I actually drove through a hurricane. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't like it. But uh, which, Where were you? I was, um, my girlfriend and I were uh, driving from basically Chicago to Boston. And this was uh, last year, and it was it was being hit by a hurricane. And so the when we got to the New York region, we were we were driving like ten out, like I think it was like six to ten hours straight through a hurricane. And like I couldn't see anything. We should have stopped. We didn't know it was hur- if we knew it was a hurricane, we wouldn't have done it. But it was just oh. like sleet of a, uh, uh, and then it, and then it got dark and it was still going on. And I was like, this is the worst because I. I don't like driving at night because I think it's dangerous. I don't like driving when it's raining because I think it's dangerous. So then I drove, and then at night while it's raining during the hurricane. So that was exciting. But uh, yeah, yeah, we didn't know it at the time, but yeah. Well, as a, as a science person and a nature person, you probably love weather, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So my, my family complains that they don't know anything about my life except for the weather mm-hmm. um, because I'm fascinated by it. And I live in a pretty temperate, I mean, Seattle is pretty much in the rain shadow. It's pretty temperate. Right now it's 72. It's beautiful. It's sunny. I live on the Salish Sea, so I'm watching great blue herons and eagles. But I have to say the East Coast weather, you know, whether it's Chicago or Boston or the Outer Banks, is really dramatic. And when I was uh, camping on the Outer Banks a couple decades ago, coming down from the New Yorker where I was working, oh, my God, we had no warning. The rain came out of nowhere the first thing I noticed was that our tent collapsed around us. And I saw all these, you know, I didn't see people flying by, but I saw birds, you know, being just thrust by us. And I saw all sorts of equipment flying by. But I think the most terrifying and exhilarating was when we had to leave the Outer Banks over a bridge that was flooded. And so I couldn't see where the bridge ended and the water began. So I just had to hope that I could feel the tires on the bridge and not 
go off. And, you know, there was no cops. There was no nothing. It was just, you know, sirens saying evacuate. And that was an amazing, I'll never forget. Sometimes I still dream about it. Hmm. I like, um, I wonder if you're, uh, if you have similar feelings, but I like going out and exploring after it rains and seeing all yeah. the, like the animals come out. Cause it's like they're, like they're, they were, um, they like kind of hunker down a little bit and then they just like explode with energy. Like, uh, the one time where I was driving around after a, a storm and there was, I think I saw like three different families of animals. Like there was like a, a mom squirrel and like a bunch of little baby squirrels crossing the road. And then there was like a mama skunk. Or a dad skunk. Uh-huh. I don't know. I can't tell genders. And they, it was doing the same thing. It was just like crossing around. And so I just like stopped and watched them. Um, but I think like the like that's a if like uh, I don't know for people listening in who want to see a little bit of nature, but maybe you don't have a lot of time. Uh, go out right after a storm. You'll see a ton. Yeah. Of, like they they come out in droves. Um, it's very very beautiful. And things bloom suddenly if you've ever been in the desert. I spent time teaching at the University of Arizona for a while and spent a lot of time on the Hopi Reservation, the Hopi Indian Reservation. And, in fact, I just wrote an article that's coming out um, this month called The Colonization of Animals. And I tell the story again of going to the Hopi snake dance uh, in Arizona on those great, beautiful, I mean, if you've ever been to Arizona. Well, you're in Texas, right? Yeah, but I'm in like Austin, so Texas. You went- Apparently, it's not normal. To I've been to New Mexico. I don't New Mexico, yeah, I'm so you now. understand the landscape. <laughs> yeah. But after rain, you know, after the snake dance, which always brings the rain, everything starts blooming. It's like fast, you know, fast motion photography. You can't believe it. Right in front of your eyes, things start blooming. Mm-hmm. And like, hey, animals come out, you know, um, all sorts of insects come out. It is a beautiful time to be a naturalist. Um, so for people who would love to be a naturalist and like, and write about these things, do you have any advice for them who'd, who'd want to write for Nat Geo? Cause I, I would imagine like most people would want to write for Nat Geo if they're like naturalist type people. Well, everyone wants to get into natural, national geographic. And I, I was very happy to do a book with them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to get into national geographic and they only have, you know, a certain amount, but that doesn't mean you can't write about it. I mean, people always say, I want your life. And I say, well, then make it a priority. You don't, I don't own a house. I have a 20 year old car. You know, um, if your priority is to travel to places to observe animals or to just observe urban wildlife in your own home and start a conservation group or to be a birder, I mean, just keep a notebook, keep a field notebook and write about it. I have, I have two classes a week and almost all of my students are writing about nature. And they all started with the curiosity. They don't have to be scientists. They don't have to be journalists. They just have to pay attention. Hmm. Um, I, I, I talk about Native Americans. I, I was just reading about how there's a person who thinks that so it's like the normal idea is that uh, the Native Americans came over like 10, 10 or so thousand years ago and then like populated the Americas. Well, apparently there's yeah. some, there's some evidence that they came over like, a bunch of, like there's like a wave like a hundred thousand years ago or something. I was just reading about it. I don't know if it's real or not, but I'm going to dig more into it. But it would be, it'd be crazy if like we're off by the time that people came over by like a factor of 10. 
<laughs> and like people have been around here for like tens of thousands more years. Um, yeah, one of the things that I like about being on Twitter is the relationships you can form. And paleoanthropology um, is a, a Twitter uh, site that I follow. I really, really love. When I was at the University in California, I was going to be a biologist um, because I loved, you know, nature. I loved studying animals. But then I saw that it was all facts on file, and they didn't allow the imagination, and they certainly didn't allow anything like um, becoming the animal or imagining what the animal's life is like. It was just, you know, facts on file. So one of the things that I try to do with my writing is really tell a story from the animal's point of view or from the point of view of, you know, the person who is imagining, like Aldo Leopold, the famous, you know, wolf conservationist who used to kill wolves but ended up being the champion of them. And it happened when he shot a mother wolf and her pups and sat there while she was dying and looked at the green fire dying in this mother wolf's eyes. And he realized that there was something bigger than human needs, that you had to think like a mountain. You had to look at the world from another perspective. And that's what I teach, and that's what I do. And that's what other people like Simon Montgomery and Delia Owens and Joy Harjo and Linda Hogan, all these wonderful writers, that's what they do. So um, kind of transition a little bit um, to the Wolf Nation novel you wrote, uh, book you wrote. The, what, what type of preparation did you do to, in writing that? Did you like go out and um, I, I believe you spent a lot of time with wolves, but I mean, like, wh- how did you prepare yourself for that? Wow, it was a lifetime. You know, it it started on the forest when when there were no wolves in the High Sierra. And my father, who is a hunter, and I grew up eating game and the predator-prey culture, so I really understand hunters and I really understand both sides of the wolf issues. But he told me there is no such thing as a big bad wolf. And um, I learned a lot about animals from him. And then in that same forest, which is in the High Sierra, you know, fast forward 50 years, the wild wolf returned. Um, it, it was amazing. OR7, named Journey, dispersed from his uh, pack and returned to the Plymouth National Forest, which is where I was born. And I think that was uh, like five years ago. And now there are three packs that wander between the High Sierra and Southern Oregon, and they are flourishing if we can keep from killing them. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I think my preparation was a fascination with the wolf. I say in Wolf Nation that I wanted to be a wolf. I wanted to grow up to be a wolf because I didn't have pets. I had relationships with wild animals. So, and the wolf was always very much a part of that. And I've written about wolves for 30 years in the Huffington Post, you know, in the Seattle Times. And when I saw what was happening in Yellowstone in 1995 with the reintroduction of the wild wolves from Canada to our Yellowstone National Park, I went over and and wrote about it for the Seattle Times and got to stand on a hillside with other biologists um, 
and see those wolves and see the first pup born in Yellowstone. Um, but again, no one was paying my way. I mean, you know, I was writing freelance articles and trying to sell them. What people don't understand is that you're not going to get an assignment from National Geographic if you haven't done your homework. You know, even if you never end up getting National Geographic, apprentice yourself to the animal that you feel passionately about and want to study and devote. You know, all my vacations were taken with either wolves or dolphins or whales. Those are my animals or seals. And I paid my own way and attached myself to a lot of scientists who wanted to tell stories but didn't know how. So that's where the storyteller comes in. If you're a storyteller and you learn those skills, you can really be um, valuable to science. Hmm. There's this, I don't know if you read this book, it's by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, yes. The, um, he's written a bunch of it. It's the one where he talks about the 10,000 hour rule, where if you do something for 10,000 hours, you become really, really good at it. Do you know what I'm talking what's, what's the name of this? Yeah. Um, it's not Blink, yeah. right? It's a different one. Um, it's Blink, but it might be the other one, the one after it. Yeah, okay. Well, you know what I'm talking about. Um, and people, I'm sorry for not, this is the second time I've done this. I need to look it up. The, um, but so in this book, he talks about like the 10,000 hour rule. And I was reading that in conjunction with doing something for a long amount of time, it's also important to do, like if you want to be better at storytelling or you want to be a better observer, you should like find ways to test yourself and uh, to like train that skill to, to mm -hmm. bring it up. Like it's not just like go out and look at birds. Like if you just look at all birds the same, like you're not really training yourself to discern like what's the difference, what's the difference between one bird and another bird. So I'm just curious, like what, what are, I don't know if you've done that. If you've like done like some like training of your own observational skills. And if so, if, if yes. you mind sharing how you did that, because, um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I'll try them. <laughs> and I'm sure the listeners will try it as well. Well, mostly it's getting out of the way as a human and watching. You know, Jane Goodall is a friend of mine. And she went without a college edu you know, education or a whole lot of training to Gombe. And she just sat very quietly and observed with her field notes and took notes. And one of the things that I have to say about science is, when you go into the field with a hypothesis or an agenda, you've already obscured anything that you might see that could be different. When Jane went in and named Fifi and Frodo and all the animals, she was ridiculed by science because she named the animals. But her point was, when we name something, we attach value to it. And so when she told stories about Fifi, the matriarch, or Frodo, the wonderful chimpanzee who was her son, people started paying attention. And National Geographic started paying attention. And I do believe it's not just the facts on file. It's the stories of generations. You know, here in the Northwest, we have orcas. We are blessed to have these extraordinarily sentient and highly altruistic and matrilineal societies of orca ponds. And I've studied them for 30 years. You know, again, I go up, I meet the scientists, I, I take my notebook, I observe, I listen, I read everything I can. But mainly, I just ask questions like, why do orcas, why do grandmother orcas live so long? 
And, and is that an evolutionary advantage? Well, I was asking that question 20 years ago, and now science has caught up and said, grandmothers are absolutely essential to the survival of a family orcopod because they remember the acoustic maps of the Chinook salmon and where they'll spawn and where they'll, you know, where they'll turn up. So I wrote a children's book called Wild Orca about Granny, the 105-year-old orca matriarch who just died two years ago. She was born before the Titanic sink, you know? She was born before we had computers. Imagine what she knew and you know what she could pass along as a grandmother. And so also when women scientists enter the field, they also don't necessarily look for just who's king on the mountain, who's fighting. You know, they'll look for things like Barbara Smut, who looked at baboons in Africa and realized that the strategies for the male baboons for getting to have sex was not being a king on the mountain and fighting other baboons. It was babysitting, <laughs> babysitting for the female matriarchs. And they think, well, he's a nice guy. I'll guess, you know, I'll make more of us. Mm. So, I mean, that was an observation that it took a long time until female scientists entered the field without preconceptions. And, you know, it's not so interesting to just study who's in, who's out, you know, who's the king, who got, you know, beat in a battle. You have to look at all the relationships. And I think many more scientists are starting to do that. Mm -hmm. I think there, um, and there's a quote by a guy who studied war or something. And he said, like, uh, amateurs look at the battles while the generals or whatever look at logistics basically like everything else besides the battle um wow. which is kind of, yeah which is kind of similar to what you're saying it's like the idea that like it's more than that than these little tiny events like like it's like everything around it and that's that's one of the when i'm watching documentaries and stuff that's kind of what i look for if it's always like there's one that just came out that i thought was kind of like not as good it was, it's on netflix and they um they just showed like these little moments and then they'd go on to the next area and it's like, oh, well, this is very beautifully shot. But like, just pick one of those animals and like spend an episode on it or something so we can get yeah. in depth on it. It's like, we, you know, we know wolves are awesome. Now go into like what's really cool about the wolves. Like don't like snapshot the wolves over here and then like the orcas over here. It's like, it was like one, I don't know. I don't know what it's called. It's, it was on Netflix, but it's just like, it's just jumped around so much. And it's kind of the same idea. Like you get like this little bit, like these little actions, like, uh, you know, who's the king, whatever. Um, these little like uh, service level details, but then like, all this other stuff that is really intricate that I think most people would love to learn about gets skipped over because I, I think maybe it's just that they don't know how to tell the stories in a convincing way um, within the time format they have. But uh, um, are, are just on the, this topic of documentaries, are there ones that you particularly like before we ju jump back into the, the, the topic we're having? There's one on Prime that I watched, and I'm not going to remember the exact title, but the theme was that um, marine mammals – um, it's all about marine mammals going from the land back into the sea. And, you know, of course, they've proved that is what happened. Because if you look at the skeleton of a gray whale or a dolphin and you look at their fins, they have articulate fingers inside those fins. And many of the tails look like they could have been, you know, ancient legs. So, that's a documentary that I really love. There's also a wolf documentary 
on um, is Prime. It, is it called Amazon. Watch the Wolf Marine Mammal Evolution Unfolded? I, I Googled it. I don't... That's it. That's <laughs> okay. it. Okay. I'm going to check that out. Um, Prime. Okay. I permanently loaded it on my, on my laptop, even though it takes up a lot of space, because yeah. I love it. You know, that's the kind of stuff where, you know, you can learn a lot from just watching a documentary. Um, I, I really think that if your readers love a certain species, all they have to do is to get passionately involved, uh, if, 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 you know, in that species. And whether it's taking field notes or, or going, you know, there's a group called Earthwatch. My friend Christina Eisenberg is the chief scientist there. She's a wolf biologist. And they have vacations where you go into the field and help scientists study their their wildlife. That would be an incredible vacation. Yeah, uh, additionally, while you're doing that, you know, like you're learning more than the average person. Like, I think some that I think most, I get the feeling that most people don't think about is that, like, um, to gain knowledge that like the average person doesn't have, it, it doesn't take that much effort in terms like you just have to do more than what the average person does. Like going out and helping out these scientists, like you're going to be exposed to many, many more times amount of information and relationships within the environment that you, you like when you come back, like every time, like, I don't know if people go to cocktail parties anymore, but uh, you could go and like, you could tell those stories and like people will like you for it. Um, as like a, uh, one tiny reason why to do it other than just, you know, the, the pure joy of learning. Um, and also for your children. Hmm. I mean, what greater gift. So many kids now are just, I mean, we spend so much time on our screens to the point where, you know, I mean, I actually think I could because of my father, because of growing up in the forest. I think I could be okay. I don't know if I'd be great at it in the beginning, but I think I could be okay if I had to, make my way and find ways to eat in the forest, you know, if I didn't have someone cooking for me or I didn't cook for myself. But what about these kids who are growing up with no sense of nature or other animals? They just, I mean, my father was telling me that a while back, you know, and he loves eagles. My father was telling me that he said to one of my uh, nephews, look, there's a, there's a great, there's a, there's a, um, a beautiful eagle up there. And, he, the, the, the nephew pulled out his iPhone and Googled eagle instead of looking up at the eagle in the air. Hmm. Now that's a tragedy because I, I will actually say that that kid grew up to become a wonderful nature boy. Um, partly because of my family, partly because he chose to spend a lot of time in the mountains on the East Coast in the, in the Blue Ridge. And, you know, he ended up becoming a salmon fisherman and doing a lot of amazing things in nature. But what about the kid who lives in the ghetto or the kid who, you know, doesn't have anyone to teach them about nature? They just Google things and think that they've understood the natural world. If anything happened to their electricity, forget it. Yeah, um, I had an advisor in college who said that uh, he, he was like a practicing psychi uh, psychologist and um, he was saying that there's no evidence to support this, but he thinks that in his experience that uh, people who farm or are in touch with nature seem to be more grounded than, um, than other people, which um, I think that someone should do research on that, but it does seem that way. Like when I, I have like a little garden and I enjoy it, 
if if like if, if electronics were to go away, I think people would just come to me and want me to like grow stuff for them. So I guess that would be a good commodity. But I agree, like most most people do not know how to do things uh, anymore. But um, they, I mean, there's one of the things I liked about Boston, for instance, like there's so much nature near around. Like they have a giant uh, whale preserve, and for like a couple bucks, you can go out and like see the whales and like be a part of it. I think it's just like people have to you know make a priority of what they want in this world. Do they, do they only want what they can, you know, Google and get those like briefest like um, bit of, of what what is there? Do they want to go out and like fully immerse themselves? Like it, it is a bit more effort. And I think that's like kind of the problem with electronics is like it's almost an addiction, like this feedback loop of like, oh, I, in like three seconds, I can be on a different tab and something up. And, it, and it's really hard to like break your habit from it. Like I've had that problem too. And I, like once I see myself doing it, like I, I'll like put my electronics away for a couple of days and like just write stuff down and, um, and not even answer emails, which kind of irritates people. But like, I think everyone needs to like, just like take some time where like, like I tend to, and my girlfriend makes fun of me for this, but like when I, when I'm home, I put the phone like right next to the door and I walk away from it. And like, unless you, unless you call me, I generally, <laughs> I don't respond for the longest time. Cause I just, I don't, I think some people like, like, like they carry their electronics from like room to room to room to room to room. And it's like, um, go do something like go, go out. And like, I understand like people are busy and they have like complex lives, but I think it's, I think th there's a lot of value to be had in, uh, going and exploring the, the nature around you. Um, but yeah. So, so, um, kind of transitioning back to the, to Wolf Nation, what, what, what were some of the, um, like, I know uh, personally, I, I've always been kind of afraid, like, uh, coyotes or wolves not not because i think they would like kill me but because i i don't like the idea of them like biting me and then like me being like punching them back or whatever or just i don't know if that would ever happen but i just i'd rather not hurt hurt anything if i didn't have to um so like what are what are some of the myths that you've like that you encountered in writing the books writing the book that uh you wanted to like specifically address well the big bad wolf myth of course is the worst and sadly disney has continued that in in movies like Frozen, where the wolves are, you know, uh, chasing after the uh, main characters. It's a prejudice that has lasted since really biblical times when we were terrified of top predators and we were competitive with them. So those myths have stayed with us. And then, of course, you get to the farmers or the ranchers who are raising cattle and they've spent 70 years without any other top predators. So when they see that there are wolves on the landscape, you know, they freak out or they get very upset and want to, you know, make sure that their cattle are not killed. So they just continue the prejudice. But that, too, is changing. I did an interview on NPR in a, a podcast called Saving the West in which a, a sustainable rancher uh, and I had a dialogue about what we what we had common ground, and we didn't agree on everything about wolves, but we did agree that wolves really help the ecosystem, and that's what Yellowstone taught us. You know, when they brought wolves back, none of the scientists realized that the wolves would, in fact, help balance the ecosystem. I mean, I don't know if you've probably read you've probably read all about that, but the stream banks come back basically. The um, ungulates or the deer and the elk um, who are overgrazing because they don't have any healthy fear of top predators, they overgraze. And so the stream beds suffer, the willows suffer, the beavers don't have trees, 
Um, the fish don't have healthy streams. But when the wolves came back into Yellowstone, the elk had healthy fear. They went to other places. They didn't overgraze. The coyotes had other food to eat from the, what was left with the wolves. The beavers had more willows to make their beaver dams. The fish had healthier streams. The stream, bed, stream beds were not eroded from the lack of vegetation. And so there was this huge ecological benefit from having wolves in Yellowstone. And that is starting to um, kind of balance the myth of the big bad wolf that has held sway for such a long time. The, I, I was reading a story, or maybe I heard the story. I don't remember. It's weird how like stories get in your head and you don't remember where they came from. But the, apparently there was this guy up in like the Pacific nor- Northwest and he was he was like doing some something in, in nature. I think he was like doing research, and there was like this wolf that came near him, and he was like, "Oh, oh, oh no, there's a wolf!" And but then he just kind of ignored it because like the wolf was just checking him out, like he didn't really, you know, like the wolf wasn't being like, "I'm gonna come eat you," which is kind of like chilling. And um, so like he just goes about his day, and the wolf just sits there and watches. And the next day, like the rest of the pack kind of sits there and watches. And so after a while, like the wolves just kind of follow him around, and then he like makes a fire at at, at night, like a couple of nights uh, in the. It, in the future from the first event and um the the wolves like came up and like sat around the fire with them and, and so it's like i always wonder um because we think that we domesticated you know the animals and then but like it might be one of those situations where like wolf-like creatures like domesticated themselves because they're like hey there's like weird creatures here and he's doing weird stuff so let's let's go hang out with him and watch um for, for the novel <laughs> experience but in this, this one guy's situation he, the, the wolves just like came up and hung out with him and like just kind of followed him around like they had like this uh not like truce or whatever, but they, they're just like, oh, I see you. I, you know, I see you. And then um, they just go about their day, um, which is weird. I, I, w- I would think that like, I don't know, they'd be like, hey, what are you doing in my, my land or something? Or like try and like do something about it. Um, but that just says how little I know about wolves. But um, no, well, wolves domesticated us. Hmm. Um, you know, that's a wonderful story about the campfire and wolves. And that's another myth that wolves will attack. In fact, very, very few. I mean, like maybe like one or two in a hundred years of wolf attacks. Um, it's the attacking of the cattle. And I want to say something about what they call lethal management, which is, you know, there's a, there's a rancher here in Washington who for three years in a row has called in the authorities to basically kill, um, any kind of a wolf pack that has gone after his cattle. And yet, he puts his cattle out on very rough ground. The cattle disperse. They aren't together in a herd, so they can't protect themselves. And they're right near a wolf den, right? So what happens is, of course, there's predation, maybe one or two. And then the authorities, the state comes in and they cull. And often they tragically will shoot the alpha female or the alpha male. And you know what that does? If you destabilize a wolf family by killing the alphas, the teenagers take over. The young, unschooled wolves who have not been trained not to go after cattle, they go after, it's like party time, you know, when the adults are gone. And so this constant lethal management as a way to navigate um, the cattle-wolf issue is just unscientific it's not sustainable and it's what something we've got to get away from and yet 
at this very at this very moment, the administration is trying to delist all wolves in our country, and that will lead to state management, which is basically lethal management. So we are at a critical time for wolves, and these stories, like the one you told, like the ones I'm telling in Wolf Nation, are so important to get out there to balance this knee-jerk response, which is to kill anything that we think competes with us. And we've done that to the point where entire species are going extinct because we consider them competitive. Um, it kind of makes me think of the Tasman. I think it was the Tans- Tasmanian devil in Australia where they thought they were eating the, I don't know, one of the animals out there. And so they just like, they, like they, they killed them all. And then they find out that they weren't even eating the animals. <laughs> they just like wiped out a species for like essentially no reason. Um, and there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of instances like that where like someone will think like animal A is doing it, but really it's like animal B. And so like, then they just like such a hair trigger on these things. But what is, what is a good way to like, so I'm, I'm out, I'm out going for a walk. I see a wolf or a coyote. Uh, what is a, a good way to interact with them? So that like, it's not like a fearful interaction, like it's a positive one. Well, I think the word interact is wrong. I think we always want to interact. We want to pet a domesticated wolf, which is a dog, you know. Uh, We want to, I mean, if you think about it, when you pet an animal, it's a form of dominion and power because you're reaching out and you're petting them, right? So, I mean, dogs and cats are domesticated and they like that. But wild animals are afraid of us. Very few wild animals want to be anywhere near humans because we're dangerous and we're lethal. So I think let's exchange the word interact to observe. If you're walking, you know, in Alaska or in north northeastern Washington or in northeastern Oregon where there are wolves, you know, in the forest, you probably won't see a wolf watching you because they're very good at hiding and they're very wary and they're very stealthy. If, in fact, a wolf like crosses the street in front of you or for some reason, you know, a wolf is seen, just stand still and observe. That wolf is not going to attack you. That wolf is going to go about its business. The minute it smells you, it'll be gone. If you are lucky enough, to ever have eye contact with a wolf, it's probably going to be in a place like Wolf Haven, which is here in uh, Washington, or a wolf sanctuary like New York Wolf Conservation Center in Buffalo, uh, upstate New York, uh, which was formed by the um, wonderful uh, French pianist Hélène Grimaud. If you are lucky enough to go to a place like that and you want to interact, I would really advise you to find a wolf sanctuary near you to support them. I mean, I did a whole book on Wolf Haven with photographs by a National Geographic author, Annie Marie Musselman. And so I was fortunate enough to watch. And again, I didn't do it face to face. I did it through remote cameras. But every now and then, they would let us go back into the wolf sanctuary and howl with the wolves which I have to say is one of the most moving, still brings tears to my eyes. Think how many wild animals actually answer you back when you call. Zero. 
maybe birds, if you can learn how to talk bird, you know, mockingbird or hummingbird or whatever. Um, but if you're out in the Cascades or you're someplace where there are wolves and you howl and there are wolves around, they will howl back. That's an extraordinary interaction and it's audio. And not only will they howl back, they will howl in a melodic harmonizing key that is in pitch with yours. So my favorite chapter in Wolf Nation is a chapter called Wolf Music. And I was afraid my editor would think that it wasn't scientific because I interviewed a ton of uh, scientists, wolf scientists. But it's my favorite chapter because I'm a singer and because I've always loved music. And I've howled with wolves all over the country. And, oh, my God, it is the greatest thing. You can take your children to a wolf sanctuary. Let them look eye to eye with a wolf. Let them howl with a wolf. And they will remember it for the rest of their lives. That's how you can interact. I definitely agree. I, when, I, when I said interact, I meant um, the more observe. I don't think you should pet. Pet, I don't think you should pet random dogs either. I think people that walk up to random dogs and start petting them is weird. And that like it's dangerous. Too. Yeah, yeah, I don't know why people do that. But they're like it's like when a when a it's almost like when a, a woman is pregnant and then ever, like people come up and like put their hand on their belly. It's like when did that become appropriate? Like why are you touching this bird? You don't know them. Don't don't do that. But um, that's great. Yeah. Um, but uh do you know, do we know why wolves howl? Like like and communicate in that way or any interesting uh, uh theories that you have? We have a lot of theories, and that's what the entire chapter, um, Wolf Music, is about. Now, I interview Ellen Grimaud, you know, who, who has written a lot about wolves, New York Cons uh, Wolf Conservation Center. The basic theory, and again, we do not know, is that they howl to kind of acoustically map their territory. Um, you know, like if I, if you're coming toward me, and I start howling, you're going to know that I'm here, that this is my beach, that this is my land, and maybe you'll give me a little bit of respect and not come in. But there's other reasons, and one that Alain Grimaud uh, points out is what scientists call social glue, G-L-U-E, social glue. So it's like your earlier example of sitting around a campfire um, with wolves or singing. You know, wolves are acoustic animals, like whales. They have tremendous communication and social skills. They have family values. So a lot of times, their howls are signature howls, or they're howls to community, or they're just howls because they like to sing together and harmonize together. I mean, there's a great New Yorker cartoon with a person running um, away from a whale. Oh, no, a whale is following a person. The person is screaming, and the whale is saying, listen to those little acoustic sounds. Do you think they're claiming territory? And you could say, well, they were afraid, or they were singing. I mean, sometimes I like to look back at humans as if we were anthropologists looking at humans and saying, why do we sing? Why do we howl? If you if you and I started singing together, somebody might join us. Same thing for wolves. It's interesting. Uh, the, I'm, I'm kind of captured with the idea of a whale chasing a human. Uh, just because most whales are really like, 
uh nice creatures but um just wild ones uh, um i'm like really taken with that i <laughs> it just seems really funny and then the whale's like oh i wonder what that person's doing why, why is it why is it singing like that? <laughs> that's, that's such a really good image um, i think i have the new yorker cri- book of cartoons but but think about it why do we vocalize you know i mean Oliver Sacks, the great neuroscientist, uh, has a book called um, Musicophilia, and he talks about the effect of music on the human brain. And, um, you know, there's all sorts of research about what happens to our brains when we sing or we, like what you and I are doing right now, when we harmonize, when we dialogue. I sing in a, I sing in a chorale. And now they found research that when you sing in a group, your hearts start beating in unison. I mean, that's an extraordinary discovery. So maybe it's the same for other animals who are very acoustic. I know that it's the same for orcas. I mean, when they get together, their signature whistles are, you know, their their names are their signature whistles. And their their sounds and their vocalizations are so rapid fire. They sound like Geiger counters or ah, I hope you heard that. Um, and there are many people like um, Orca Lab or Orca Network who are studying the vocalizations in the hope that one day we can crack the code and actually hear what they're saying. But it may be too alien to us. And to try to impose our language onto their language is another projection. You know, I think the best thing to do is just listen and enjoy. I think I was reading that. Um, I read too much. The, that there was a, there was a. I think maybe it was an orca, but there's like a, a whale that like was was making a noise, but like it doesn't it doesn't harmonize with other whales. So it's like all by itself because it can't find anyone. And then it made me sad that I couldn't find anyone. It like just swims around. It keeps like putting out this like tone, but it's like not within a range that other. Uh, I think it was maybe it was an orca. I'm just gonna say orca. I don't think it was. Um, but then like it, it can like get within the range that other orcas would hear and be like, "Hey, come over here. We're friends." And so like, it just kind of swims around all alone. I don't know if you know about that, but um, I do. It's called. I I wrote about it in Build Me an Ark and in I Want to Be Left Behind. There's a the scientists call it lone sociable whale which means that for some reason they've gotten separated from their families and because they're highly acoustic and they communicate, you know, via vocalizations, they call out constantly trying to find their families. Um, and it's tragic. There's a couple of stories I tell, one about Wilma, who's a, a, a beluga whale, and belugas are the canaries. You know, they're beautiful, beautiful vocalizations. Up in um, Nova Scotia, near uh, near some of your East Coast lecturers, and Wilma was uh, just showed up in Guysboro um, as a lone sociable uh, little baby beluga, and the whole town didn't know what to do because they didn't have to feed Wilma because she could feed herself, but she needed socialization, and most of all, she needed stimulation. So the school children would get in their boats. And they would go out and they would call to her and sing to her and she would sing back. And I went up there again. That was my vacation, pulled all my, you know, money together, went up there with Linda Hogan and uh, my native writer friend. 
And we got to sit in a boat and interact with Wilma, the lone sociable whale. And she was there for six years in that little town. And the whole town adopted her. And suddenly, after six years, she disappeared. And no one knew whether she found a mate or she went back to the Arctic or whatever. But for six years, she was their beluga baby, basically. And they loved her. And she was wild. She was never domesticated. She was wild. It's, um, that's an intense story. The, um, I, li- I like that. The, I, I look forward to when there's like a couple hundred years from now when we don't have like the, the whaling industry in the mm. scope of like some of these whales' lives because they live so long. Um, yeah. So then we can just be nice to them. But uh, but I, I'm curious if you have any uh, f- uh, your like fun wolf facts that you love. Mm. Oh, well, I wrote a kids book that's a spinoff of both Wolf Haven and Wolf Nation, and it's called Lobos: A Wolf Family Returns to the Wild. Because remember, I mentioned Wolf Haven. Mm-hmm. One of the things they do is in their wolf sanctuary where they have like twenty odd. Um, wolves that would be there in the sanctuary for their lives as, you know, saving their lives and also education, is they do a species survival program, which is a federal program where they can breed red wolves and Mexican gray wolves that are highly endangered. And I was fortunate enough with the National Geo photographer, Annie, to cover the story of a family that was chosen by the federal government to be returned to the wild. And that's the story of Lobos with great pictures. And so I got to spend a ton of time down there, you know, observing these wolves. And one of my favorite fun facts, two of my favorite fun facts are the things that the wolves love the most during the summertime to eat. And the kids love this. Blood sickles. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. The other thing I loved was the fact that the wolves always had to have a partner. You can't, you know, this idea of the lone wolf, they always say when someone shoots up a school or something, they're a lone wolf. That's just not true. There are not. Lone wolves are the most vulnerable. They are endangered. They don't stay lone for long. They may disperse, like the male may disperse to go form his own pack, like, you know, OR7 who went, to, you know, Plumas National Forest. But immediately he found a mate and began to have families. So wolves have family values that are very similar to ours. They are close-knit. They are tribal. They are fiercely loyal. And they take good care of each other. You know, if a wolf is injured, the other wolves will feed him or her. Um, I also really think that uh, one of the one of the most amazing facts about the the reintroduction of these you know lobos wolves is that they can tolerate a high degree of change. Um, you know these wolves. Imagine when these wolves, you know Hopa the mother and brother who was the father of this family. Imagine that they had to get into a van after being in the you know in this in this nature all their lives. Then they had to get on a plane. 
I mean, can you imagine if those Alaska Airlines passengers, the pilot went on and said, we have some guests in baggage. It's a wolf family. <laughs> can you imagine? People would have freaked out. Um, and they went all the way back to the Ted Turner Ranch um, in New Mexico. And they learned how to hunt really quickly. And then they were taken to Mexico to, um, by that time, Hopa was pregnant again. And this is all in the, in the children's book. And they were taken back to Mexico where they are practically extinct. There's like 10 wolves in Mexico. And they are now flourishing there, the last I heard. And again, if we can keep from killing them, they will repopulate and really help us balance the ecosystem. We don't need millions and millions and millions of cows and tiny little populations of wolves. We need a balance. Yeah, I like to think we're heading in that direction. With uh, you know, yeah. with, like, uh, with the with I think people are being more and more conscientious, like that, especially the new generations coming up. I think it's just like in their lexicon to be more conservative, uh, more considerate of nature. Um, but so the last couple of questions I have for you, and these are like kind of the ones I ask of everyone, so because I'm just kind of uh, it's like a standardized thing. But um, I'm yeah. curious. I'm curious, um, what is something that you wonder about that you don't have the answer to, but that you wish you did have the answer to? So like, oh, that's you, a really good question. Oh, oh, you already have the answer. I usually give, uh, I get, usually give an example, like an example for me. So like I can, so you can like formulate one, but if you already have the answer, you can go. No, tell me, I'd love to hear. Okay. Yeah. So like one of the things I wonder about, um, I guess I'll make this like more, uh, on our subject. Like one, the one I normally give is about like the big bang and, and its relation to the universe. But I've always wondered if, um, if, if, if like a Leonardo da Vinci type person can exist for humans, like someone who's just like, like really, really intelligent, just like on another level. Um, I imagine the same thing can happen for other animals. So I wonder if there's like being like the first animal that was sentient for your species and just like looking around and be like, this is kind of weird. And uh, what would that be like? Um, I don't know how you'd answer that or like it could be answered, but that's one of the things I wonder about. Like be like the first sentient thing that like meets that threshold or like there's just so outside the norm and then like slowly propagates out to the entire species potentially. Well, let's go back to wolves mm -hmm. and your fire, you know, your fireside story. What would it have been like to be a wild wolf and let's look at observing Neanderthals or observing many of the early species of hominids and, and wondering, you know, first of all, they had meat, they had fires, how they got that, and wondering about the risk of approaching that hominid who was so violent and so primitive and seemed to kill everything it could find with spears or whatever, what would it take for a wolf to risk venturing anywhere near that kind of a, of a, of a being? You know, I try to think what that might have been like for a wolf. Same thing goes, I think, for whales and dolphins. I mean, I've been around many orcas and I've kayaked with them. And they often approach kayaks and make eye contact. And I would love, you know, your question, I would love to know what they think of us. 
and whether they think there's a chance for us to learn not to kill everything that is competitive, to live in balance, to know what enough is, to be able to accept other top predators, to embrace the knowledge and cultures of other species, even if they're totally alien to ours, like insects. I would love to know if whales, dolphins, wolves, seals, all the animals I've intimately studied, if they think that humans have a chance at surviving mainly ourselves. Because I think if we, if we don't learn the lessons that you and I are talking about here, I don't think there's going to be many generations of us left. And that might be the best thing for the world and for other species. But it's very tragic because I love humans and I want my next generations to live in this beautiful world. So that would be my question. Hmm. I like it. The um, reminds me of a TV show that I watched when I was a kid. But the uh, the 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 next the, ne- the, ne- the, ne- the, ne- the next question got stuck on a loop there. Um, um, <laughs> is there a is there a a problem or a concern that you have that you don't have the solution to? I guess it maybe might be what you just said, but um, a problem or solution that uh, a problem or concern that you have right now that you don't have the solution to, but that you would love to have the solution to. Yes, plastics in the ocean. You know, I sit here looking at the Salish Sea, which is gorgeous and full of life. And, you know, because I'm in a marine mammal stranding network with the seal sitters, gray whales wash up, seals wash up. They wash up with trash and garbage and plastic in their intestines that has slowly strangled and killed them because they can't digest it. And, you know, here in Seattle, we are mad recyclers. I mean, we are kind of zealous recyclers. But when I go to the East Coast, people are throwing everything. There's no recycling. I mean, maybe there's paper and maybe plastic bottles. But, God, if we could quit drinking out of plastic bottles, if we could, you know, really start looking at at, uh no plastic bags like they are doing in some cities in California, and I think Boston is looking at that. If we, that would be a huge, huge solution to a terrible problem, um, which is plastic in the ocean. The um, a, a startup entrepreneur I interviewed last year, Molly Morse, who whose name sounds like a superhero, just you know, throwing that out there. She um, she's she said that it's we make. We make like, like we make plastic bottles that are kind of like single use things, but then we make them so that they last forever, which is really weird. Well, I'm paraphrasing, but then um, she's working on this biodegradable plastic, basically that only lasts like a couple of years. And I think that, like that That's type great. of stuff, yeah, that type of stuff I think is going to keep going up and up and up. But like what's going on in like the the gyres in the Pacific are just, um, and mo- I think a lot of nature documentaries like it's it's hard to talk about nature without touching on it. So I I think. I think it, more and more people are going to be conscientious, and it seems like uh, my generation seems to like paint a little bit more if it, if if it's like more um, um, quality in terms of like what it does for the nature. Which so which is my way of saying like I think there's hope. <laughs> I think there's I, hope. Yeah, there's hope. I mean, I couldn't carry on if I didn't think there was hope. And when I work with kids going into schools with these. You know, I did leopard and silky about the seal pups. I did wild orca. 
I did um, Lobos, and now I have this new Catastrophe by the Sea, Catastrophe by the Sea, about a lost cat and tide pool creatures. When I um, go into the schools and I work with kids, they are so advanced ecologically. And I have so much hope if we can just, oh God, if we can just look to that generation and also really think about our legacy. As I said before, it's our story, but it's also the world we leave our next generation. If we leave a world full of species going extinct, extinct and oceans choked with plastic and you know, air pollution, if we leave a world for the next generation like that, that is a great sin of omission on our part. So the work you're doing, the work I'm doing, the work, the scientists that we're talking about, the storytellers, you know, it's, it's what gives me hope. Um, so the last question, and this is the one I, I, I think it'd be um, interesting to see what you say, but the, what is a quote either of yours or in, in out there that you like to leave us on? Oh gosh. Oh, there's so many. Well, speaking of hope, my favorite poet is Yeats, the great Irish poet. And there's a wonderful, I think it's in um it's either Easter Eve or All Hallows Eve. I can look that up for you. I have the the book here. And the quote is this. When such a one as I cast out remorse, then such a sweetness flows. We must laugh and we must sing. We are blessed by everything. Everything we look upon is blessed. And I want to add to that. We must laugh and we must sing and we must howl. (laughs) and that was brenda peterson remember to check her out at brendapetersonbooks.com or amazon or anything like that just take a look at brenda peterson and so my recommendation would be if you have kids check out wild orca and if you're a lover of wolves check out wolf haven or wolf nation fantastic books and keep keep an eye out for her new book coming out catastrophe by the sea brendapetersonbooks.com Thank you for staying around today, and I will cue you out with my outro. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Here, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.